Open your Bibles to John chapter 16. We'll be looking this morning at only two verses, verses 12 and 13. We've come this morning to the fourth sermon in our series on the Holy Spirit as we work through John chapters 13 to 17. This is a mini-series as we go through these passages because John chapter 16 has more prolonged discussion about the person and work of the Holy Spirit than anywhere in the Bible. So if you would understand who is the Holy Spirit, the best place to go in all of the Bible is what book? Tell me. John. And what chapter in the book of John? 16. John 16. And we're looking this morning at verses 12 and 13. I would draw to your attention the fact that the the Christian faith is rational. It is primarily a logical and intellectual religion. It is not only or merely intellectual But it certainly is rational. And when we say that, what we mean is that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That happens in our minds. That's something where we have to see the weight of our sins. And we have to turn our values so that we hate our sins. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. At least three times by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here in John chapter 14 verse 16. John chapter 15 verse 26. John chapter 16 verse 13. He is the spirit of truth, not the spirit of feelings. He is the spirit who guides us into truth. He's the spirit that shows us truth. We are commanded to honor God with our minds. Luke chapter 10 verse 27 Love the Lord your God with all of your mind. How can you love God with your mind? How can you honor the spirit of truth? How can you be taught without your mind being actively involved? Well, this morning we are going to look at the Holy Spirit's teaching And this teaching, I'll tell you up front, is very important for two reasons. First of all, it's important because Jesus has a great many things to tell us. Look in your Bibles at verse 12. What's the first thing you see in verse 12? I want to tell you many things. I have a great many things to tell you. It's as if. He has a warehouse of good things to give you and he wants to dispense them one thing at a time. You need the Holy Spirit as a teacher because there are a great many things about which you are ignorant. That's what Jesus is saying. What's the second reason we need him as a teacher? It's right there in verse 13. Someone tell me, what's the second reason we need the Holy Spirit to teach us? It's in verse, did I say verse 13? It's in verse 12, I'm sorry. First of all, there's a great storehouse of things. There's so many things. And secondly, in verse 12, what is it? You can't bear them. 
we have problems in ourselves. We need him to come and be our teacher because we're actually very weak. We are much weaker than we realize. You see, men have a tendency to, to think of themselves as Samson. Every one of us thinks that we are Samson, but we forget the end of the story. Story: Samson was beat by a girl half his size. We all tend to think, I'm so strong, I could kill 800 guys, just give me a jawbone from a donkey. And we forget that a girl who's only five foot four could overcome us. We are actually very weak. We are overcome by the smallest problems. Isn't that true? How many times have you been ready to come to church and then a little thing happened and you didn't come? And then later you look back and think, now why is it that that little thing stopped me from coming to church or from reading my Bible or from praying or from evangelizing? That's happened to me many times. I was getting ready to speak to someone about the gospel and then the smallest thought came into my mind. Or maybe they just gently turned their body. They weren't saying anything. They turned and thought, well, I won't go to them now. We are actually very weak. And that's said in verse 12. The first thing is, Jesus has this storehouse of things. You need to get them all. And you've only got this fraction of things. It's like there's a mountain of gold. And you've been taking away the mountain of gold dust with a a spoon. He says, take a shovel. And then the second problem is, we're so very weak. We are petty. We change constantly. We will... Every minor thing, I'm preaching to you and you're probably going to be distracted five or ten times during the next 45 minutes. Isn't that true? We need the Holy Spirit to come and teach us because we have these great problems in ourselves. As I was meditating on this passage and praying, it came to me that we are like pipes, conduits, but the problem is our pipes are clogged up. That's what he's saying in verse 12. That all the the pure water should be flowing through, but it can't flow at the rate because there's all this dirt in there. Or another metaphor. It's like you're a road going from here to Johannesburg. How long does it take to go to Johannesburg? Perhaps if you're Isaac, two hours. But have you ever driven in Mozambique through the dirt roads? You can go 400 kilometers in two days. What's the difference? The quality of the roads. Have you gone to Johannesburg and taken R101 to save all the tolls? And it takes you a lot longer. Some people are shaking their heads, no, I've never made that foolish decision. It takes you longer because of the potholes and the holes on the road as you're driving along. But then you don't have to pay 200 rand. So there's Romans at the end. The point is, we are like those roads. We are supposed to be flying along at 120. But instead, we're slamming on our brakes every 200 meters. Oh, and then jerking back and forth. Because actually in our hearts, there is a great many problems that keep us from the truth. That's why you need the Holy Spirit to teach you. And with that as a background, I would like to tell you this morning that the Holy Spirit must teach you To understand, love, and obey the truth. That's the point of the message. The Holy Spirit's going to have to teach you, and when he teaches you, these three things will happen. He's going to teach you to understand, to love, 
and obey. Or else, if he does not do this, your mind will be dark and you won't realize it's dark. You will be disinterested and you won't realize that you're disinterested. And you will be disobedient all the while thinking you're one of the best Christians. And I wrote that out as the main point of the passage. If we don't have the Holy Spirit coming to us and doing this ministry to us, then we will not love, obey, and understand. And even worse, we'll think all the time, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I get this. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've grown up in the church. I've been there all my life. I was, I was the pastor's kid. I was the pastor. We're going to think, oh, yeah, I'm a good Christian. I'm always obeying. When in reality, other people are looking at us saying, you? Are you even a Christian? We're going to think, oh, yeah, I know all this about the Bible. What is propitiation? Propitia what? We need the Holy Spirit to do this teaching work in our hearts. So last word of introduction, as I go on, you are going to be tempted to be distracted. I don't know if that's coming because your pipe is blocked. And I don't know if that's because Satan, who is an evil demon and a powerful spirit, is coming down right now to put distracting thoughts in your mind. When I'm preaching in the village, there will be chickens running through or cows right behind me. Are those cows sent by Satan? I can't tell, but I think sometimes they are. <laughs> but I can tell you this, you're going to be distracted and when that comes, right here, I want to help you. This is, we're stretching out before we do our jog, okay? This is all part of the stretch. When the distraction comes to you in the next seven minutes, or three, let's be honest, in the next three minutes, when the distraction comes, I want you to do this mental exercise. In your mind, I won't even know, no one around you is going to know. They're all going to think you're listening, but you know what's happening. In your mind, you say, Holy Spirit, please come and be my teacher. Because that's what he does, and that's what I'm talking about. By teaching you, he pulls away the distractions and causes you to understand, love, and what's the third one? Obey. Obey. Understand, love, and obey. So let's begin. In John 14, I'm, I'm sorry, in John 16, verse 13, look down in your Bibles. The rest of the time we'll be spending in John 16, this, verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will do something. What is he going to do? He'll guide us into truth. Now, in John 14, verse 16, it says the comforter, who is the spirit of truth, will, and it uses the word teach. This guiding into truth and teaching are the same thing. So you can put a cross-reference here in your Bible and mark down, unless you're using my Bible, uh, you can mark down right there, John 14, 16, besides 16, 13. It's a cross-reference. What is guiding into truth? It is teaching. You have been taught if you're being guided. Now, learning has four levels. This is by John Gregory. He was a Baptist classical educator. That's a category where there's only one or two. And here, John Gregory wrote a book in the 1800s, and he gave us four levels of learning. Let me give these to you right now. And you ask, as I give these four levels to you, ask yourself, do I know anything according to these four levels? Okay? You know some things according to the first level. 
What about according to the second level or the third or the fourth, okay? First level, memorization. You have learned something at the most basic level if you've memorized it. Take, for example, the months of the year. I trust everyone over 12 could say the months of the year, January to December. You've memorized those, so at the first level, you learned that. So maybe, maybe Kulani and Una, maybe uh, um, Afano, sorry, uh, maybe Willow or uh, some of the younger kids, they say, I've memorized January to December. Wonderful. The first level of learning is to simply memorize. But you know, there's more than that. There's more than that. There's the second level, which is being able to translate it into other words. So someone might say, I know the months of the year, January to December, but then someone else comes in and says, I know the months of the year. January is one of the hottest times. The second month, it's, it's, it's toward the end of the summer. And the third month, we're now getting approaching winter. In the fourth month, we get a break from school and we have Easter in the fifth month. And then he can explain something that happens in each of these times. He's putting it into different words. Or as Mortimer Adler tells us to do, you, can, you know that you've done this second level when you can translate it into another language. Now, if you're an American, you basically know one language. But Africans tend to know at least two or three or four. If you know five or more languages, would you put up your hand? Some of you know. If you know five or more, put up your hand. So we can see. Look at that. That's the way to be. Now, here's the test to see if you know something. You say, I know what it means to be a Christian. Wonderful. Tell me in another language. Tell me in Sutu. What does it mean to be a Christian? Tell me in Afrikaans. Tell me in English. Akasnatabura. Okay, great. Tell me in Engels. Okay, translate into another language to see if you really understand it. That's the second level. Can you do that? You say, well, I've got that down. I can do it. Okay, what about the third level? The third level is to present reasons. You've really learned something if you can give reasons for what you're talking about. Why are there 12 months in a year? What's happening with this 12-month cycle? Can you tell us something about that? Can you explain what happened and why it's broke up in 12 and not 11? 12 and not 13? 12 and not 50? I think we should all go metric and just have 100 months. Why is it not 100 months? Well, the third level of understanding, you've learned something if you can give us reasons for what's happening. Now, in that sense, have any of us learned the months of the year? The fourth level of learning is this. Apply it to all of life. That's the real test. Have you really learned the months of the year if you can't live wisely in those months? Have you learned what the months are doing if you haven't counted up the months for how many months you have from birth to death on average? By the way, it's 840. I have counted them. And every year I look back and thus, if I live till I'm 70, I've got this many months left. But by the way, the average in South Africa is 62 for men. About 67 or 68 for women. Which, 
talk about totally unfair. Let's have the government bring equality there. If you really understand the months of the year, shouldn't you be able to apply it to all of life and understand, I've got 12 months, so I'm going to use those months in this kind of way. There are men here who work with tools and large machines. You now understand those machines so well that you're able to move from one to the other. And if a problem develops with one and you say, this machine's broken, but I've got these other three machines that do different jobs, maybe, oh, I can do this particular aspect of this job on that one. And so you understand it so well that you can manipulate and move and still get the same job done even though machine number one is broken. Ah, you understand that. You've learned that. But what about learning the doctrine of Jesus? What about learning the church? What about learning repentance? Have we even learned what repentance is on the first level? What is repentance? Has anyone memorized the definition of repentance? What is repentance? To be, to be sorry for sin and to hate and forsake it. That's the definition in, in one of the catechisms. To be sorry for sin and to hate and forsake it. Have we even memorized the definition of repentance? That's number one. Number two, could we put it in different words? Tell, tell me in, uh, in Shivenda, what is repentance? Could we, could we take it and give reasons that repentance is repentance and repentance is not faith, for example? In fact, I was just recently with a pastor and he was talking to me and he actually said, actually... Repentance is faith. And I thought, you've got a problem with your definition right at the very beginning. See, repentance and faith are different. And you need to not only memorize the definition, you need to be able to translate it into other words. You need to give reasons that repentance is repentance and repentance isn't faith. And then number four, can you apply it to life? Can you live in repentance? If you can't do that, then you have not learned what repentance is. Maybe you say, well, I'm a Christian. Wonderful. I'm glad you are. Can you tell me what the definition of faith is? Go ahead. Quote it to me. That's the first level. Oh, well, faith is a faith is a I prayed. If you can't even do level one, what about level two? Can you put it in other words? Level three. Can you give reasons that faith is faith and faith is not repentance or faith is not perseverance? Number four, can you apply it to life? Can you actually go out on Wednesday and actually believe in Christ? Can you have Christ as your highest reality on Thursday at lunch? Can you do that on Monday afternoon when you are so tired and it's another Monday and your desk is filled with papers and you can look at those papers and say, ah, but I have Christ. And he's washed away my sin. And he may come back for me before I finish that stack. So I better do a great job on that stack. Because when he comes back, he's going to check how I'm doing. That, that's faith. Have you learned faith in that way? You see, when the Spirit comes to teach, he will teach us at all four of those levels. Now, if that's learning, then what is teaching? I told you there's the four levels of learning. If that's learning, what is teaching? Here it is by the same man, Gregory. Quote, the actual work of the teacher consists in, 
Now, what is the work of a teacher? Do we have teachers here? Who's teaching? Any teachers here? One, two, three. So don't walk out now or listen to it. <laughs> what, wherein does the work of teaching consist? Here it is. The awakening and setting in action the mind of the student. Awakening and setting in action the mind of the student. Now Gregory goes on to say in that book, I'm quoting from, from John Gregory's book, The Seven Laws of Teaching. And Gregory goes on to say on that law, Actually, the teacher can only go so far and then he can go no further because you can't force the student to learn. But what is teaching? It's setting in mind, the, setting, in mind uh, setting in action the mind of the student so that he desires to learn. Waking up the mind of the student. How many moms have ever wanted to wake up the mind of your child? You ever felt that way? What is going on? I know, it's nothing. Don't even say it. Have you felt that way? Now, if you're a good teacher, you're going to awaken the mind of the student. But Gregory says, and he's exactly right, you can only go so far and then you stop. But I'm exalting today and I'm explaining today one who does not have a limit. I'm explaining the work of one. He's a teacher who doesn't have a boundary. He can actually go right through and make your child want to learn. The man, the one I'm explaining today, this third person of the Godhead, when he teaches, he actually comes into your mind and makes you want to learn. That's the glorious work of the Spirit of God. This is why we should, all of us today, have a special time of prayer and thanksgiving in the afternoon, thanking God for the Holy Spirit's teaching. And then as soon as you're done thanking, you should not say amen before saying, please come teach me more. Because he doesn't have a limit. The teacher at your kid's school has a limit. She can go this far and then say, what can I do? The kid refuses to learn. I see moms laughing. You can't do anything when the kid won't. But the Spirit can do something. The Spirit of God can go right past that. He pushes aside the defenses. He knocks down the wall. He doesn't knock on the door like a gentleman. He kicks down the door and comes inside and throws out the old furniture and builds it again the way it should be. And though the foundations are cracked, he can throw it all out and build it again with steel in the bottom like it was supposed to be the first time. That's what he does when he teaches. Brothers and sisters, look back at your life. Are some of you in a place right now where you say, my life is a mess and it's at least in part because of the stupid things I did in 2012 or 2004 or 1987? Can anyone look back and say, I wish I could change that because I'm still feeling it today. I didn't feel right. I made bad decisions. The Spirit of God is the one who can come to you and change your desires so that you love what you should love. Obey what you should obey. Think the way you should think. He's the one who does that with his teaching ministry. Some of us are saying, I've got this thing in my heart or my life. I've got this habit that I can't change. Honestly, Seth, when you talk about reading and praying with the kids, I really want to do that. But you don't know what it's like in my house Tuesday night. 
You don't know what it's like to come home as a single parent and just be so exhausted you can't take anymore. You don't know what it's like to fight all the time. You don't know what it's like to fight with drunkenness or alcohol. You don't know what it's like to fight with money. Money is on my mind all the time because I'm fighting. Every 20 rand I get is precious to me. And the answer is, I may not know those things, but the teacher does know those. And he can go right past those difficulties and give to you new desires. Set new habits. You see, the charismatic church's love, Luke 137. Nothing is impossible with God. Or Matthew 19. I think it's verse 27. For with God, nothing is impossible. The, the, the real meaning of those verses is that when you come face to face with sin in your life that you can't change, when you honestly look at yourself and say, I'm a mess, I'm lazy. I'm changeful. I, I try to read my Bible and I don't understand anything. And if I say that at church, they're all going to think I'm, I'm a pagan. I can't get much out of it. I, honestly, I read my Bible two days a week. And then if I tell the pastor that, he's going to shout at me again. If you look and say, I've got all these problems and difficulties. I've got relationship problems with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I've got problems with my kids and I can't fix them. What you're going to need to do is actually go to the Holy Spirit and say, I'm going to need a new heart. Because at the core, that's what this teaching ministry is. At the core, it's the Holy Spirit coming in and regenerating you and giving you a new heart. You're going to need nothing short. Can everyone just pay attention to this line? You are going to need nothing short of being born again. That's what you're going to need. And that's what he's doing fundamentally when he teaches. When the Spirit teaches us, the Bible comes to life. When the Spirit teaches us, we love to read the Bible. When the Spirit teaches us, we begin to understand the Bible. It is the Spirit of God that teaches us these things. It is this love for truth that is the great mark of the Holy Spirit. Last year on Reformation Day, I preached from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10. Men will be damned because they do not love the truth. Did you realize that? 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10. Because men don't love the truth, they're going to be damned. Not because they, well, I prayed to receive Jesus. That's not enough. Do you love the truth? Love it? I mean, I sometimes read it. Do you love it? Would you say, oh, new action movie from whatever? Or reading through the book of James? Give me James. Be honest. Does your heart pull toward James? If you say, it's pulling toward the action movie or whatever, then go and say, Lord Jesus, teach me. Because, uh, Holy Spirit, come and teach me. Because one of the marks that he teaches is that we have these new desires. When he teaches us, we don't run from conviction. How many of us have felt conviction? We think, I know I need to do that. Oh, what I'm doing here is wrong. I know I need to join the church. I know I need to be more consistent in church attendance. I know I need to read my Bible. But when someone mentions it to you, you think to yourself, I'm getting away from this conversation as quickly as possible, and I'm going to make a point not to talk to that person again. Even though our church covenant says very clearly in number nine, if we should sin in one of these areas, 
We will humbly admit and quickly repent whenever anyone comes and talks to us. And we call on everyone else to come and talk to us about it. But how many of us even have a difficulty with that? If someone says, hey, I missed you last week at church, or how are you doing? You think to yourself, oh, fine. I will never talk to this person again at church. I'll make sure. Oh, so I've got to use the washroom. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, I've got to go just right now. There's a, there's a something I've got to leave immediately for. You see, when the Spirit comes to convict us, we don't run from conviction. We actually like it. And I have seen that in some of your hearts. Some of you have thanked me for coming and rebuking you. And I say, the Holy Spirit's answering our prayers. And if you want to give me a bonus, take conviction well and come and say, Pastor, I just want to say, last week I was convicted by that sermon or this brother talked to me and it cut my heart and I repented and changed. That's better than 5,000 rand. That's better than a new Bucky. I don't want those things. We want to know that God is working in our midst. God's changing people's hearts. You're not running from conviction, but you're embracing it and saying more, more. Oh, it hurts, but give me more because this is good for me. Some people don't understand the facts. Like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, he said, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? And that's when he helps our understanding. The Holy Spirit teaches us. Some people don't love the facts, like my Muslim friend who has memorized many verses from the Bible, Abu Bakr, memorized many verses, but he does not love those verses. He says, oh, I know what it says. It says here in the book of John, it says that Jesus is God, but that's terrible, he would say. He doesn't love those facts. Satan is like that. Satan knows the facts of the Bible. Satan quoted freely from different parts of the Old Testament when he tempted Jesus. And Satan can use the Bible on you. Satan gives the Bible to many false teachers. So they come out and they'll say, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And then they'll go on to spout 45 minutes of rubbish. But they started with a Bible verse, probably given to them by the prince of darkness. Satan understands the Bible, but he despises the truth. Some people simply don't obey the facts. They can quote Bible verses to you, but they are still bound by lust, greed, anger. Reminds me of the man who came to me and knew his Bible in a church that I was in in the U.S. and said, God wants me to leave my wife. God wants you to divorce your wife. How can you possibly say that? Answer, he was not taught by the Holy Spirit. But notice this in verse 13. And this is fast on its way to becoming two sermons. Notice this in verse 13. He is the spirit of truth. Friends, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit will never contradict the Bible. The Bible is rational, logical, and consistent. It is not a contradictory or illogical work. We can look at the world and verify the truth of the Bible, which is the way you do it. You look at the world and say, ah, I started with the Bible, and now when I see Genesis chapter 1, God made the world in six days, and he made it perfect. Then I go out to the world and I say, oh, science supports what the Bible teaches. We don't start the other way and say, let me go study evolution and see how I can squeeze evolution into the Bible. Rather, we start with the Bible and we can see, wow, it's consistent with what we see in the world. 
A teacher that contradicts himself in his lessons is a bad teacher. So let's say I'm teaching you how to drive. I think we have a driving instructor here. Let's say I'm teaching you how to drive. And I say, hey, I want you to know, when you drive, you've got to be defensive. How many of you were told, drive defensively? Okay, drive defensively, which means when you pull up, don't rush up, pause. You say, well, that guy, ah, you don't know what crazy thing that guy's going to do. You just, you drive always anticipating that that guy's going to make the wrong decision. Drive defensively. And then in the very next breath I say, and I want to strongly encourage you when you're going to drive, man, you got you to go for things. Go at it. Just be aggressive. Man, the early bird gets the worm. Carpe diem, seize the day. You got to rush, man. Get the, get the best while it's there. Just remember, you go to a funeral, man, you come through the line, you take everything on your plate because it's going to run out before you get to the end. So I just want to tell you, if you want to drive well, be aggressive. Now, everyone would say, you just contradicted yourself. You're not a good teacher. Now, if you want me to be aggressive, you tell me that. If you want me to be defensive, tell me that. But don't say be defensive. By the way, never pause. Don't second guess yourself. Just run. You can't have both of those at the same time. A good teacher does not contradict himself. So the Holy Spirit could never contradict something that's in the Bible. Let me give you a syllogism. Follow the syllogism. Proposition number one. The Holy Spirit inspired the words of the Bible. True or false? The Holy Spirit inspired the words of the Bible. Everyone true? Number two. Proposition number two. The Holy Spirit can never contradict what he wrote. True or false? Conclusion. The Holy Spirit can never contradict the Bible. True or false? Got it. So then what do we do when someone says... Oh, the Holy Spirit was there at our church last week. Oh, how so? We were all speaking in tongues. Oh, what happened? Yeah, we just prayed in tongues. How many people? Oh, it was about 70 people. Now, what about 1 Corinthians 14, 27 that says, If someone has a tongue, it can be no more than two, or at the very most, how many? Three. Three people, they had 70. What's the Bible say? Who wrote the Bible? How can the Holy Spirit inspire you to do something that contradicts what's in the Bible? Or a woman told me this at Elam. She said, I'm a pastor. And I said, oh, why did you become a pastor? And she said, the Holy Spirit led me. Well, 1 Timothy 2, and oh, this is the same 1 Corinthians 14. We were just there, 1 Corinthians 14, 27. It goes seven verses later. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. I do not want a woman to speak in church. But if she wants to learn anything, I'm quoting Paul the Apostle here. But if she wants to learn anything, let her ask her husband at home. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Now, did the Holy Spirit inspire those words? Oh, no, no. Those words, they were uh, by Paul. Because it even says, I do not want. So did the Holy Spirit write them or did Paul write them? Who wrote them? Uh, Well, um, um, uh, it was Paul. Great. So take your scissors and cut them out. Here's the scissors. Go ahead. I'll watch. Cut them right out of your Bible. Well, we can't do that. Well, why not? Because the Holy Spirit, wait a minute, you're contradicting. If the Holy Spirit wrote those words, then please hand over your pastor title and I will gladly put it in the rubbish bin and you won't use it again. But as long as you're going to contradict the Bible, don't say the Holy Spirit. Like the man who said, God led me to divorce my wife. We all know, we look at that and say, that's ridiculous. All of us here are, are looking when we say, there's a denomination in Johannesburg or denomination in America that says you can be a homosexual and be a pastor or you can divorce your wife or you can this and then you're sitting in this congregation saying 
oh, the Bible clearly contradicts that, then why is it that we don't see the Bible clearly says these other things and we just overlook it and say, well, the Spirit led me. The Spirit never leads you to contradict the Bible because he's a good teacher. Oh, my. We're going to have to run here. The specific truths, look in verse 13. It says he's going to guide you into all truth. Do you see that in verse 13? What is the all truth that he's guiding you into? The all truth was the doctrine of the church. The disciples did not know even that Jesus would die on the cross, though they had been told. They didn't know that he would rise from the dead because remember, when he rose from the dead, they were all shocked. They didn't go to the tomb and wait. You see, if they believed Sunday morning before the sun came up, they'd be waiting at the tomb for the stone to be rolled away. They didn't believe. They were all shocked. That's why they're running to the tomb and then running back. They didn't believe in the the death. They didn't believe in the the resurrection. They didn't know the Holy Spirit was going to come, though they're being told. They didn't understand Pentecost. They didn't understand union with Christ. They did not understand the local church. They didn't understand that Gentiles would be saved. They had no concept that this kingdom was going to go over all the world. They were clueless about that. The Holy Spirit said, I'm going to teach you those kinds of things. Brothers and sisters, you know you're guided by the Spirit when the doctrine of the church is clear to you and precious to you. Years ago, two guys wrote a book. It's called, Why We Love the Church by Two Guys who should not. That's the title of the book. Why We Love the Church by Two Guys Who Shouldn't. And what they were saying is, we're all postmodern these days, and we're supposed to hang out at Bry's and go out at the parties and clubs and not have much time for the church. Maybe go to church once a year or twice a year, but we're not. We actually go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night for prayer. We're there all the time. And here's why. And one of the answers they give in that book is, The Holy Spirit, if he's actively working, he will draw you toward a biblical church. You will become more committed to a biblical church. The less committed you are to a biblical church, the less of the Holy Spirit is active in your life. If you are, number one, committed to a false church, or number two, not committed to a true church, that's evidence that the Spirit has not been guiding you into all truth. The more committed you are to a biblical church, the more you're filling out the example of what's being taught in verse 13. He will guide you into all truth is specifically in this context, the doctrine of the church that he was going to reveal to them. Ephesians 3 verse 5, this mystery of the church was not revealed to our fathers in the past, but to you. Abraham was not a church member. John the Baptist was not a church member. The church starts after Jesus died, after Jesus rose, after Pentecost. Those guys weren't. It's now being revealed, and the disciples are saying, look at this. This is the truth that the teacher gives us. The teacher's drawing me to the church. So a wonderful response to this sermon would be this. We have 10 members at our church, and we have about, what, 30 people here? A wonderful response to this sermon would be for a good number of people to say, wow, The Holy Spirit is leading me. I'd like to come to the new members class. We're doing a new members class just now. We're going to finish in 15 minutes and we're going to start a new members class. If the Holy Spirit's teaching you, you'll say, I see the value of a local assembly. The Holy Spirit's revealing to me 
the church, union with Christ, the Holy Spirit coming, being bound together as one body, one new nation. I see it, the body of Christ with him as the head. This is becoming precious to me. Maybe I'm not quite ready to join, but let me come to the class and be more committed, at least one step more than last week. That'd be a great response to this kind of teaching. It would be evidence that the Holy Spirit is doing his work of teaching. As he says in verse 13. Oh, time is running, so let me, let me just pick and choose here. Without a certain kind of education, we cannot be saved. And that is why we should buy the truth. Proverbs 23, 23. Buy the truth. Which is why we try to give out books. We have book studies. Men, I want to encourage you. We're starting a new book study in about two weeks. You're all welcome to join us. If you're a church member, if you're not, you're all welcome to join us. We have a new book study. I think I have two more copies left. The cost of the book is 150 rand. Now I'll say, I'll give it to you for free. But should I? Shouldn't I say, hey, show your commitment. Give the 150. But I'll go even further and say, I want to help you so much. If you want to be involved, I'll give it to you for free. Come join. Study and learn. Why? Because without an education on the church, you are in great danger. That, that's what's being taught in chapter 16, verse 13. This is uh, remarkable that the early reformers, when they were splitting from the Catholic church, they said, a true church has three marks. Does anyone know the three marks that the reformers said? I think I gave these to you in the church history class. Number one, a true church preaches the Bible consistently. That's number one. Number two, a true church practices church discipline. So if we find you living in sin, we're going to cut you out. And a true church, number three, has baptism and the Lord's table according to the Bible and nothing else. Those three. So the reformers said, if you want to find a true church, you've got these three. But what was the first one? Bible teaching consistently. When they said that, what they were saying was, a true church bows to the Holy Spirit. People like to say that the reformed churches are not filled with the Spirit because we don't bark like dogs and roll on the floor and, and things like this. But actually, if anyone reads books, you'll know that John Calvin, who wrote a thousand-page book, on Reformed theology. John Calvin was called for hundreds of years the theologian of the Spirit because he so strongly emphasized the Spirit of God. I hope that's what we do. I hope we do that because we desperately need the power of the Spirit to teach us the glory of the church and to put it before our minds so that we will say, I love the church. Show me union with Christ. Show me how we're one new body. Let me be committed to it. Let me learn it. Let me pass it on to my children. Let me so structure my life that I have made a good plan for my grandchildren to follow me. Some people say, well... Can't really do much. I was told this just yesterday at uh, Bungani. They said, well, you can't do anything with your kids. If they want to, if they don't, they're not, you know, you can't, you can't force them at all. And I asked, how many children do you have? I have four. How many of them love the Lord? Oh, none of them do. And I thought to myself, you're unconverted. So your children are unconverted. So that's why you're telling me, yeah, yeah, there's nothing you can do with your kids. You know, if they don't love Jesus, yeah. It's not. Well, actually, there was something you could do, young lady. 20 years ago, before you had children, before you were married, you could have started there. And then when you sinned in that way, you could have gone straight to Christ and said, oh, forgive me, help me. And then I'm going to lead this little baby to Christ. If it costs me my life, I'm going to lead him to Christ. But did you do that? 
Well, now you're 20 some years later and you're just studying the Bible now. So actually what you should say is, I made mistakes for the last 30 years and that's really hard to take. None of us like to hear that our whole life is a big mess up, right? But that's the start of the Christian gospel. Yeah, you messed up for 30 years, but now if you come humbly, he'll take you. That's the Christian gospel. And this passage is teaching the same thing. Go to the Spirit who will teach you the value and glory of the Christian church and then structure your life around the body of believers so that your children and grandchildren will go on for Christ and with Christ. Oh, I have... Just just so briefly here. Just look down at verse 13. He is the Spirit of truth and when He has come, He will guide us into all truth. He will not speak of himself. I'll just make a comment on this. The Holy Spirit is content to receive from the Father. He doesn't want to be an inventor. He is not interested in being a chic, avant-garde, cutting-edge artist. He's not like someone from Hollywood who says, look at my new clothes. The Holy Spirit says, I faithfully receive and give out exactly as the Father gave to me. If it's good enough for Jesus and good enough for the Spirit... Why are we so eager to find church 2.4? Why do we want the newest invention or entertainment when the Holy Spirit himself says, I don't invent anything. I just faithfully receive from the Father and I teach you exactly as he gave to me. The true church is the title, is, is summarized in the title of the next book we're doing in the men's book group, The Conservative Church. Our job here is just to faithfully take what Christians hundreds of years before us had, and we're just going to try to give it to the people after us. That's all we're doing. We're not inventors. We are just faithfully taking what was there before us. You watch out when you find a church or a ministry that always, is always looking for something new or clever. But how are we going to catch the people? How about you just worry about faithfully handling what was given to you, and God will take care of the cleverly catching people. He guides the sheep from the truths that he has given by the Father. And then notice this, the last point I'll make here, verse 13. He will not speak of himself. Look at that humility. Even God himself will not speak of himself, but he will show you things to come. The Holy Spirit not only brings all truth, the doctrine of the church, to your mind, but he is going to bring to your mind the future. Many people don't think about the future because they've not been taught by the Holy Spirit. And the things that we should think about in the future could be summarized in two categories. The future judgment and the future hope. If you are led by the Spirit, if you say that was a Spirit-filled service, then you will be thinking about the day when we will all rise and we will stand in front of God with nothing to protect us, nothing to defend us, nothing in which to hide, not family, friends, or relatives, not any structure, not any claim, because Romans 3.19 says, as soon as we open our mouths to defend us, the law of God will clamp our mouths shut. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is with you when you are thinking about the future judgment. When you are thinking about that time when your knees will be shaking. And you will look up as best you can to the blazing radiance of the one on the throne. And then you will hope, oh Christ, now I need you now. And he will come and stand before all his people and say, this one's mine. I lived and loved and died for him. I've prayed for him. I walked with him on that pothole road. I 
put the water through his blocked pipe. I'm the one that kept him in the hardest darkness. I'm the one that made the Holy Spirit. uh, uh, I'm the one that made the, the doctrines of the Bible interesting to him. I'm the one that made all these things alive to his heart. You see, the Holy Spirit's working when he puts before your mind future judgment and the future hope that we will be saved and given an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. So this whole message can be summarized with this. What is your attitude? What is your attitude toward the revealed truth of God, toward the Bible, toward his church, toward his people? What is your attitude toward that? Do you understand it? Could you quote it? Could you put it in other words? Could you explain it? Can you give reasons for it? Do you love it? Are you drawn toward it? Do you obey it? If that has not happened to you, then I urge you, pray. Meet with us for prayer now. Go home and pray. Pray, Holy Spirit, come and teach me. Come with us Thursday night. You'll find we did that for an hour, about 60 minutes Thursday night. We just prayed for this kind of thing to happen. And it's happening in the hearts of some of you. You need to go to the Holy Spirit and say, thank you. God's answering the Thursday night prayers because it's happening in me. Join us Thursday. Pray by yourself. Pray by your family. If these things have not happened and you say, yo, this is really convicting. This is not my experience at all. Then pray for it. And if this is your experience, then thank God for it. Because a mark of an unregenerate person is that he's unthankful. Father, come and help us. Spirit of God, come and teach us. Son of God, pray for us. And make all these truths real in our lives and in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are discussing different kinds of sermons this evening. So open your books to page number 30. And I made some copies for those who might not have. Is there anyone who'd like a copy? You don't have the notes. Page number 30, different kinds of sermons. If you two could sit together. Have a chance to see it together. And our dear brother already um, touched on this, on selecting a passage. It has been my experience that if you want to understand a topic thoroughly, you should hear it, ask questions about it, and then review it. So tonight will be a review, but from a different speaker. So hopefully there will be some new perspectives But a lot of this was covered already when Brother Paul went over selecting a passage. So hopefully we'll be able to move over this ground more quickly. If you have questions, please ask. Sermons have been classified in different ways. Some have classified them as textual. Textual would be if it's two verses, an expository if it's more than two, or different ways. Um, We're going to classify them this evening in three categories. Under entertainment preaching... Topical preaching and expositional preaching. So three different kinds that we'll deal with tonight. And before we even discuss these or um, give a definition, just from the titles, entertainment preaching, topical preaching, expositional preaching, can you give me your opinion on which one is the most common, which one is the most uh, well-known? What's your experience shown? Topical. Topical? So you choose a topic and explain it? 
What would you say, Lloyd? In your experience, what has been the most common kind of preaching? Just from those titles. We haven't yet tried to define them, but from what you hear about the title. Entertainment preaching, topical preaching, expositional preaching. Okay. Let's go into all three of these and begin with entertainment preaching. Definition, first of all. Who'd like to read that definition? Isaac, go ahead. Read that definition for entertainment preaching. Public speaking done in a church or crusade with a Bible, but without teaching the Bible, or without accurately teaching the Bible for the purpose of making people feel good, earning money, or gaining a following. Public speaking. That's what it is at its core. And it's public speaking of a certain kind. It's done in a religious setting. But it lacks something. What does it lack? Bible teaching, teaching, right. You take away the teaching element, or... Take away the accuracy, and then add a motive. What's the motive here? You want people to feel good, you want some money, or you want attention. And here in number two, the preacher's focus or his emphasis is man-centered. He's asking the question, what do those people want to hear? And the, the best example in my ministry is in 2008, in Elam, there was a man... An Afrikaans man who drove from Johannesburg in a Mercedes up to Elam. And he rented the soccer pitch and set out chairs. And I remember when I went to this event to take notes and to evangelize that he said, I am not going to mention hell because I don't want anyone to be unhappy. I just want you to be happy. Well, you see right there, he tells us up front, my goal is to give you the things that you want to hear. Uh, Benefits, letter B, benefits of entertainment preaching. What are they? There are none. It is not preaching. It's not preaching. It is a tool and work of Satan. It should be opposed at every turn. If you are in a church like this, run. Don't walk to the door. Get out. Examples of entertainment preaching would include anecdotal sermons. That's the kind of sermon that's sadly very common in Africa. Very many stories, very few observations of the buffalo. We haven't looked at that thing. But instead, we're babbling onward. And again, one of the best examples of this was from the chief of Elam's funeral. He's the chief of Njaka, that whole area. And so when he died, the funeral was very large. And they asked my neighbor, Mr. Makuvele, who is also a, quote, pastor, close quote, to preach. And that man spoke at the funeral from 1 Kings chapter 2, where Adonijah grabbed onto the horns of the altar. And he said, if you have sickness or poverty or problems in your life, You need to grab onto the horns of the altar like Adonijah. And sadly, he did not read the context because Adonijah was a wicked sinner who did not repent. And Solomon said, go and kill him. He sent a man named Benaiah to kill Adonijah. And while he held onto the horns of the altar, Benaiah went back and said, what can I do? He's holding onto the altar. And Solomon said, no, no, don't worry about that. Just kill him. And he killed him. And the preacher, the man speaking in public, did not mention the fact that this has nothing to do with claiming your breakthrough. 
This has to do with a wicked man who's trying to use religion. Oh, I'll pretend that I'm religious by standing by this altar. And the king says, no, no, don't worry about religious pretense. Just, just kill him. And he dies. Now, that, that would have been a very helpful sermon if he had actually told us what the passage says. But instead, he said, you need to be like this man. And you need to grab onto the horns of the altar. And he did that for entertainment purposes. Money sermons. This kind of sermon is common in prosperity churches. The goal in this sermon is somehow overcome problems, increase material happiness. Number three, manipulative sermons. We dealt with this last week. This is the kind of sermon you might find in a cult. It uses unbiblical guilt. It uses fear. It uses money to persuade people to behave in a certain way. Amy and I have some dear friends in the U.S., And the wife in this couple grew up in a church which had the name Baptist. And the man declared, that that is the man who called himself a pastor, declared that it was sinful to use health care. It was sinful to be in organized schools. It was sinful to be in many things that the Bible does not say are sinful. And he became very dictatorial and tyrannical. Actually, so much so that this woman's sibling died Because when the the child was sick, the pastor claimed, don't do this thing and don't go to the hospital. And the child ended up dying. And to this day, she says, they've long left that church and found a healthy church. But she said, how sad that my parents to this day have the guilt of the death of one of their children. Because they were in a church or a, a, a group led by a man who practiced manipulative sermons trying to lord over his authority, forgetting 1 Peter 5, that they must not act as lords over God's heritage, but be examples to the flock. And the very next verse says, be clothed with what? 1 Peter 5, 5? Humility. Humility. Get dressed with humility. That's what pastors are commanded to do in 1 Peter 5. The fourth category, secular sermons. This kind of sermon would be common in liberal Christianity. That is the kind of Christianity that is not Christian, but it denies that the Bible is authoritative. So they would say there's errors in the Bible and we don't need, we don't really need every word of the Bible. We just need some, some kind of kernel of truth. And when they say kernel of truth, they mean they're going to throw out everything they don't like that doesn't fit with unconverted reason. And those are sadly found in many of the churches in Johannesburg and Pretoria, that would have been called mainline denominations, Methodist, Dutch Reformed, Anglican. Problems with entertainment preaching, just briefly, I'll go through these. I'm sure you can see them already. It exchanges the goal of exalting Christ, teaching the Bible, or submitting to the commands of Christ for another goal, some other, other lesser purpose. So rather than drawing your heart to Jesus, or rather than actually learning the words of the Bible... Rather than obeying the Bible, it turns into entertainment. Number two, second error, it substitutes the content or exchanges the goal or the content. Rather than exegesis, it brings in eisegesis. You remember what eisegesis is, don't you? We learned that on the first night. Eisegesis, taking the meaning into the text. Exegesis, pulling it out of the text. But entertainment preaching substitutes those, those, the content. 
Number three, entertainment preaching expands the element of persuasion until it has devoured the element of teaching. That's it. Entertainment says, I want to stir up people's sentimentality. I want to give them nostalgic feelings, perhaps of another time, perhaps of something in the future. But I want to stir up superficial feelings that they can relate to a time they saw a movie, or they can relate to a time they were at a party, or they can relate to a time when they were at a rock concert. I want to stir up these sentimental and superficial feelings rather than drilling down to what Jonathan Edwards called religious affections. And what Edwards meant with that phrase, religious affections, were the deepest passions of the human heart. Not superficial things such as we see from a three-year-old, a four-year-old, or an eight-year-old. Religious affections are those passions that are at the core, the deepest of the human heart. The kind of things that can allow you to weep and rejoice at the same time. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had both of those joy and tears at the same time? That can happen with the real Human, uh, human nature that God has put inside of us, but not with superficial things. And that's what entertainment preaching attempts to do. Friends, let me give a few comments before we move off this topic that are not in the notes here. Entertainment preaching, in my opinion, is unusually common, and it is particularly dangerous because entertainment preaching acts like a sedative. That is, it kills the natural alarm system that you would have. So when a person begins to feel guilt, entertainment preaching comes in and says, quick, quick, a joke. Just when the person begins to ponder heaven and hell, life and death and their own sins, entertainment preaching says, wait, 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 look at this over here. Distraction, humor, lightness, let's be chipper. Entertainment preaching is particularly dangerous. We must guard ourselves from this, from developing a taste for it. And you men, may God give you grace wherever you go to lead your family to a a church that does not follow this terrible and false kind of preaching. Number two, what's the second kind of preaching, Sushekov? Benefit benefit of Right at the top, number two, what's the second kind, the category? Tropical That's it, topical. So the first kind would be entertainment, and that's not. Cut it. I only included it because it's so common. But now we've got two kinds of real preaching. One is going to start with the topic. Look at the definition. Preaching that starts with the topic. Can anyone guess what expositional preaching is going to do? What's it going to start with? The text. Now, those are both valid. You may want to start with the topic. For example, I've got examples in here. Letter C. God hates abortion. Maybe you say to yourself on the third Sunday in January, I'm going to, on the anniversary of America legalizing the murder of babies, which was highly influential, scores of countries around the world followed America in the most wicked pagan decision perhaps that country has ever taken. And on the third week of January in 1973, I believe, they chose to say that it is legal to murder a baby as long as that baby does not pass through the birth canal. And many other countries follow that wickedness. So it's common for churches, not all, but a number of churches, to preach on the 3rd January of each year a sermon on life 
it would not be bad for you to say, I'm going to preach a sermon on 10 reasons why abortion is evil. Or seven things we can do to help those who've had abortions. Or five things to prevent mothers who are pregnant from, gaining, from having abortions. But what are you starting with there? No, you're not starting with the Bible. You're starting with the topic. You said, I want to talk about... And then you open your Bible and say, let me find a verse. Is that wrong? No. No, it's not wrong. The Puritans sometimes would preach a sermon. One of the Puritan sermons was called the earthquake sermon. There was an earthquake in Europe somewhere. And one of the Puritans heard about it and said, let's talk about this. And preached a sermon on why did an earthquake come? Beginning with a topic can have some validity. There's value to this. Here's another one. Why I am not an atheist. Why I'm not a Muslim. Why I am a Christian. Why I don't believe in divorce. Why I love the home. Family worship. There are a number of ways that you could begin a godly, biblical, helpful, topical sermon. Look at C5. And that directs you to Appendix 2. Just quickly go to Appendix 2. It's in the back page. <clears throat> it's my page 67, so it may be your page 68. You're 68? Yeah. Now just look at that. First of all, what can you see from the title? What's the title of this sermon on page 68? Church Covenants. Now I preached this sermon. It was longer than this. I just cut it down to fit on one page. I preached this sermon at New Covenant Baptist Church a number of years ago when I was asked to go to a church camp. And I asked him, what kind of themes are you focusing on? I said, the glory and value of the local church. So I preached a sermon on why we should use church covenants. And I did not start with, let's just open up the Bible to the passage that teaches to use church covenants. Now, I did use the Bible. But look at the thesis. You can't prove this thesis directly from one verse of the Bible. A church co- Here's the thesis. A church covenant helps church members remember the laws of Christ so that we can obey them. Can you think of one verse that teaches that? I can't. So I used many verses. And the first point was Nehemiah 8 to 10. I just drew some observations, 15 or so observations from Nehemiah 8 to 10, and a covenant they made there. And then look at Roman numeral number two. Reasons to use a covenant. The first one is from John 14. The third one is from Matthew 18. This is an example. Oh, and then look at number three. Methods for using a covenant. This was biblical teaching. Supported by church history. But there's no single passage that teaches this. This is more like systematic theology. I hope it was helpful for them. They've never asked me back. But the point is we started with a topic. And attempted to explain that topic. Look at the benefits of topical preaching. Letter B, back on page 32. Topical preaching can address issues that, are, that your church wants to have answered. It can allow the preacher to deal with contemporary issues. So you can say, we've had a problem in our church with young people marrying those who are not believers. I want to talk to you today about why Christians should marry Christians. Or whatever topic was wise to be addressed at that time. There are some weaknesses, though. Look at letter D. There's at least four. 
Some doctrines of the scripture will be neglected. If you only preach topically, you're going to skip some things. If you only preach topically, when you do get to those things, you won't deal with them the full way the Bible does. So maybe you'll preach a sermon on spiritual blessings topically. But if you don't go straight through Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 14, you're going to miss some of those blessings explained the way God wanted it to be explained. Number two, the congregation is held captive to somebody. Who's, who's the uh, man who gets to hold the congregation up? The preacher. Because now if the preacher really likes to talk about legalism, you're going to hear a lot of sermons about legalism. If the preacher really likes to talk about Calvinism, this could be that. If the preacher really likes evangelism, or whatever he likes, he may tend to bend that way. Number three, topical preaching tempts preachers to fall from exegesis to eisegesis. Now, it only tempts them. It does not force this. You can preach topically in a biblical God-honoring way, but it tempts the preacher. I know because each time I preach topically and I get down to, say, the, the seventh point, then I'm looking and I say, okay, I had a verse for the others. What was the verse for this one? And if you can't remember the verse for that seventh point, you may be tempted to do what? To force a verse and say, well, Esther 8 verse 9. Well, what if Esther 8 verse 9 doesn't really teach that? This Last week, Caleb and I were reading a book that you brothers got for us. And this gentleman attempted to prove his theological point, And he listed about eight scriptures. And we went through. Was it about eight? How many was it? Yes, sir. About eight. And we went through one after another. And we thought. This doesn't prove his point at all. How did he come to this? He was probably hoping that if he makes a big list, people will say, oh, that must be right, and they'll pass on. Weaknesses, topical preaching, is not the way the Bible was arranged. God did not arrange the Bible topically. He arranged it historically. So if we want to preach topically, we're going to have to do something that's not quite the arrangement of the Scripture. Third kind of preaching, it is that which Paul has already dealt with at length, and that is expositional preaching. Now, when I say expositional preaching, there are a number of ideas about expositional preaching. The first of those would be preaching that deals with a whole paragraph at a time. That's not necessarily expositional preaching. It might be boring lecture. I have heard some men stand up to, quote, preach, close quote, and they dealt with a paragraph, but they were so dry and disinterested. There was no life. It had not touched them. It was as if they were just talking about some facts they had looked up. Expositional preaching can commonly be seen as, I take a paragraph and I... Explain phrase by phrase. Well, here's a quote from John Stott, a preacher in London, an Anglican, a reformed Anglican, and a contemporary with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Stott was known for his preaching, and he wrote two excellent books on preaching. And this is the best thing I found from either of those books, this definition right here. Let's look at the definition. All true, Christ, quote, all true Christian preaching is expository preaching. Underline that. I like that. If you've ever done biblical preaching, 
It's expository. Because, Stott says, it refers to the content of the sermon, which is what? Biblical truth, rather than to its style. What is the style? A running commentary. So rather than saying, verse 13, three minutes. Verse 14, three minutes. Verse 15, four minutes. Let's close in prayer. Rather than merely doing that, which that might fit some passages, but not all. Rather, it's delivery of biblical truth. Keep going in the quote. To expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and expose it to view. Underline that. That's the core. Expounding scripture is bringing it out of the text, exposing it to view. The expositor pries open what appears to be closed. He makes plain what is obscure. He unravels what is knotted. He unfolds what is tightly packed. The opposite of exposition is imposition or eisegesis, which is to impose on the text what is not there. But the text in question could be a verse, a sentence, or even a single word. It could also be a paragraph, a chapter, or a whole what? Last Sunday night, we did an entire book of the Bible. Isn't it, the, I think, the fourth longest book of the Bible? At other times, we've done one word. Justification. Last year on Reformation Day, we took one word, the word justification, and labored to make that one word clear. But it's still expository if you're, if you're exposing to view the meaning of the text. Keep going in the quote. The size of the text is immaterial, so long as it is what? Biblical. What matters is what we do with it. Whether it is long or short, our responsibility as expositors is to open it up in such a way that it speaks its message clearly, plainly, accurately, relevantly, without addition, subtraction, or falsification. In expository preaching, the biblical text is neither a conventional introduction to a sermon on a largely different theme, nor a convenient peg on which to hang a rag bag of miscellaneous thoughts. Underline the last phrase. It is rather a master which dictates and controls what is said. That's the great point that John Stott made. In expository preaching, the Bible is the master, and specifically what inside the Bible? The text. Whatever text you've chosen for that time. If you said, I'm going to preach on these two verses, then those two verses are your boss. You have no authority, none at all, to say something those two verses don't teach or logically imply. It is those two verses that sit over top of you telling... This far and no farther. It's the boss. It's the master. And you'll notice this is an Anglican teaching this. Later, Mark Dever would take this idea and put it as one of his marks. Of, it's his first mark of the nine marks of a healthy church. Dever says the first mark is expository preaching. And when he says, what is expository preaching? This is what he says. And as far as I know, he doesn't give credit to Stott. He says, expository preaching is... Preaching where the point of the sermon is the point of the passage. That sounds a lot like John Stott. The text is the master. Doesn't that sound like it? It's the same idea. Stott, 30 years earlier, says the text is the boss. 
Mark Dever comes along and tells us the passage must control the preaching. That's expository preaching. So let's get a little bit shorter. Number two, what is expository preaching? It is preaching that seeks to explain why God put a passage in his word and what people should do because of it. You're just telling people, why did God put it here? And what do we do with it? Expository preaching is speaking true meaning, the true meaning and the valid applications. It is difficult to preach expositionally without preaching through books. It's going to be very difficult. Because if you are just beginning preaching, you simply don't have enough knowledge to preach thoughtful, full, nourishing sermons choosing a different book and a different text. Because in order to accurately explain that verse, you should have read the entire book several times. But if I'm going to preach, for example, on Ephesians, I can read the book of Ephesians once a day in about 45 minutes. And so in two weeks, I'll have read it 14 times if I'm a pastor. And if I know I'm going to preach through the book of Ephesians, I can read it every day. And if I'm preaching through the book of Ephesians for, let's say, a year, that would give me 52 sermons. I could read that book over and over and over. And then I might actually understand by the time I get to chapter 3, verse 2, what it's talking about. But if you're jumping around, how are you going to read? Let's even take 1 John. It's not a long book. How could you read 1 John repeatedly and then also drill down into the passage if you just do one sermon for 1 John and next week you're jumping somewhere else? So in general, because of the complexity of the Bible, if you preach consistently, expositionally, you're going to go through books. For example, Ephesians 1.7 cannot be completely explained without really understanding the verses before. And Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6 can't fully be explained without understanding Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It hangs together like a document. Those preachers that have been most used by God to teach God's people and whose sermons have done the most good and had the broadest uh, exposure outside of some of the amazingly gifted men like Spurgeon have been men who have preached through books like Calvin, Charles Simeon, Matthew Henry, and then in the modern day, John MacArthur, John Piper, Lloyd-Jones. So with expository preaching, the preacher's approach is word-centered. We must understand the meaning of this passage. Some benefits. We've already covered these. We'll go through these quickly. What are the benefits of expositional preaching? It guards against all false doctrines, not just a few. Maybe your preacher really hates this false doctrine, but he doesn't hate these others. But preaching through books will mean he has to deal with all of them, even the parts he's not comfortable with. It protects the people from the preacher. Number three, it assures that nothing in Scripture will be ignored. Number four, it organizes his task. Can I tell you, when I have the chance to preach somewhere outside of my church or church plants, I have such a difficult time choosing what to preach on. 
Because I've now been in the ministry for 20 years and I think, well, they need this. Well, maybe they need this. Oh, wait, this, oh, this verse. And I can spend, I now know what Spurgeon said with selecting a passage. It's, it's frustrating. He even said in that chapter of lectures to my students, he said, sometimes it takes me more time just to select a passage than it does to study the passage. I have felt that. I'm not asked to preach outside of my church or churches very often. But when I am, I find myself ro- uh, rolling back and forth to this passage, then this passage. No, But preaching verse by verse saves us from that. Number five, it ensures that the sermon's life applications will be entirely scriptural. Some people have a background in churches that made applications that were not in the Bible. They would say, we must do this, or we must not do that. Whites must not marry blacks. Women must not wear pants. Um, Or any number of things. Women with hats. Or whatever other issue that person or that denomination wanted to focus on. But preaching through books forces your applications to come from the passage. Not from your little... um, Segregated church culture. Every group of churches gets a kind of culture. And the safest, most healthy church culture is the church culture that is tied most closely to the Bible. And preaching that way helps tie it this way. Every church gets a culture from the conferences, from the music, from the people, from the friends, from the popular preachers. They all influence the way we act, the way we look, the things we do, the values we have, the purchases we make. But if we tie it as tightly as possible to the Bible, we'll be safer. Number six, it educates God's people most efficiently. Number seven, it produces a settled confidence. Number eight, it testifies to all men that God and the Bible and Christianity are logical. Number nine, it glorifies God by exalting his word. So look down there at letter C. Here's an example of what what I mean when I say expositional Preaching, I've picked four sermons coming from Revelation. Revelation 19, Jesus comes to destroy. That's the meaning of the passage. Uh, Revelation 20, the millennium. It's mentioned there six times, thousand years. Then the next one, the great white throne judgment. That's clearly the next section of of the book. And then in Revelation 21, what is heaven like? So you can check out the appendix later on for a sample outline. But there are some difficulties. Very briefly, expositional preaching requires work because it emphasizes what? It is difficult. And if you men are honest, which I believe you all are, you want to preach the Bible and you don't want to have, you don't want to say, certainly, this is right or this is wrong if the Bible doesn't say it. And some of you are saying, I wasn't trained in a Bible school. I don't know the original languages. How am I supposed to say certainly the way that man does or that man? How am I supposed to say this is it when maybe I don't quite know. I don't have all that information behind me. Expositional preaching is difficult because of that. And you should realize if you're going to give your life to expositional preaching, it's going to be very hard. It's not going to be easy. Know up front the kind of thing you want to purchase. And if you see a man doing this, recognize how difficult it is. And if you see him doing it badly, it's because it's very hard. 
Pray for him. Encourage him. And buy him books so he will not be a dull, lifeless lecturer or a false teacher. It's difficult. That's why many people don't do it. It requires logic. It requires you to focus your mind. It requires you to push thoughts out of your mind that you really want to talk about. But that's not in those two verses. So I've got to push it away. And if some of you have been in my church, sadly enough, you can remember times when you thought, okay, that's interesting that he said, but I don't quite see it in the passage. Second difficulty in expositional preaching It requires a preacher to deal with doctrines he might not like or even understand. It forces the preacher to stretch himself and to submit to the Bible. Number three, expositional preaching requires planning sermons in advance. It's difficult because of that. Planning is not a virtue of popular culture. And planning is not a virtue of pagan culture. The pagans did not plan because they believed the world was controlled by Moloch who could change his will at any time. The first absolute deity was I am that I am. We talked about that on Sunday night. The ontology, the firm root of being. What makes something firm and absolutely unchangeable? It's God saying, my name is I am. I'm the substance of all existence. I'm the big circle at the top. But if you were a pagan and you believed that there was Zeus and Thor or Moloch and Ashtar and whoever else, you would say, well, maybe their gods are stronger. Like in the book of 2 Kings, when Israel beats the pagan king. I think it was with Jehoshaphat. He beats the king. And is it the king of Midian? He comes and says, well, their God was the God of the plain, not the God of the mountain. So let's go fight them again on the mountain. You see, he had a problem with his ontology. He didn't understand that I am that I am. There's an absolute being who's true at all times. And because of that, why would you plan? Why would you ever plan if you think, well, my God is the God of this area, but not of that area. My God's really good on Friday, but Thursday's rough for him. Monday's a bad day for my deity. This kind of thinking makes paganism avoid planning, which is why you will not see any great inventions from paganism. It was monotheism, because monotheism had that rooting in absolute truth. It was monotheism that allowed any kinds of inventions and graces to come. And I would say that's even true for Greek culture, even though it was polytheistic. It had, number one, one God at the top, Zeus. And number two, the good things they brought about were brought about from the truths of monotheism, even though they were inconsistent with those truths. Expositional preaching requires planning. Planning is difficult for pop culture. Pop culture does not like to plan. It is the now generation, the immediate generation. Uh, Sprite put a banner across the Elam Tar Road a few years ago that said, obey you. First of all, it's ugly English. Secondly, it's terrible theology. What a culture. What kind of world would we live in if everybody obeyed themselves? Every urge that comes to their mind, they do it. What a terrible, backward, murderous place we would be in. Well, all those things make expositional preaching difficult. Let me give a few hints on how to plan for expositional preaching. 
Letter E. Choose a book or section of the Bible with the audience in mind. So, for example, when I first began Grace Bible Church, we preached a series through the Sermon on the Mount. Because the purpose of that sermon is to give the laws of Christ. So I thought, if you are a believer, this will help you grow. And if you are an unbeliever, this will terrify you with what a real church is like. And before I finished that series, several people left. After the sermon on, series on the Sermon on the Mount, in order to strengthen believers to know what the laws of Christ are and to show the unbelievers, that's the kind of righteousness we're expecting here. I don't care whether you put on the clothes or whether you do your little outward things. We want you to have a really pure heart, just like the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're not willing for that, and if you're not ready to pray and fast for that, you should probably just walk down the street because there's a lot of churches you can, you can shop for. After that, we did 1 John. Why? 1 John gives confidence that you are converted. And before we were done with that, Mia Coney said, I think I need to become a Christian. At the beginning of that series, she said, I think I am a Christian. And it was interesting. We finished that sermon at the end of 2018, was it? 2019? And she still wasn't baptized until this year. But the goal, I hope those sermons worked in her heart. That was the goal of first, the First John series. So choose a book, thinking of your audience. Or choose a section of a book. Number two, read and reread the book. Read it multiple times, over and over. Try this. Read, if it's a larger book, like Matthew, 28 chapters. Read the whole book in one hour. Well, of course you can't read it, the whole, every word in one hour. But if there's 28 chapters, that gives you about two minutes per chapter. Can you do that? Spend just two minutes on each chapter. You know what you'll find by the time you get to chapter four? You want to spend seven minutes on chapter four. But discipline yourself and say, no, I'm going to move on. I'm going to try to get it right to chapter 28 before the 60th minute ticks. You, what you'll find at the end is you, a lot of verses you completely skipped, but you'll find you actually saw the story of Christ's life in a way that you've never seen it before. Try reading Matthew five times, one hour each time. There's a many verses you won't even read, but what you'll find is at the end, you'll see connections that you never saw. You'll see the kingdom of God. You'll be able to say, now I understand what the kingdom of God is. Try reading through books, sometimes more quickly, sometimes more slowly. Number three, discover the purpose statement of the book using hermeneutics. We'll deal with this again in, I think, two weeks from now, so I'll pause on that, and I think our brother Paul's going to deal with this as well, so... Number four, break the book apart into paragraphs or sections. I like to do this, but I have found since I wrote these notes that very few other men that I'm familiar with do this with their preaching. That is, they, very few men that I've met break their sermon, their book study into a number of sermons at the beginning. That is, before I preached on 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, I broke it up into about 51 sermons. I said, this is my plan. I might change a few, but this is my plan. Before we started John 13 to 17, I said, my plan is to do 37 sermons. Now we've got about three extra. That was my plan at the beginning. It seems to be, to be helpful as I work through the book, but not all follow that. If that's helpful for you, then use it. Number five, 
Make sure each individual sermon supports the book's purpose statement. If you come to the ninth sermon, make sure you're still saying what the main point is. If you're not on the main point anymore, you miss something. The, the links in the chain are broken. And if they're broken for you, then a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pews. Number six, start with the first sermon as an introduction or an overview. I have found those are the most difficult sermons to preach and the most profitable. If any of you have been helped by these sermons that we're sometimes doing, just covering all of Exodus in one sermon or all of Genesis in one sermon, I've always found those to be helpful if the man works hard, but it's a lot of hard work. And then in the next page, I just have an example, a sample of a series that I taught on the Sermon on the Mount and just gives an example. May the Lord guide us to stay far from entertainment preaching and preach the word. Any questions?